Hello and welcome to the Pursuit Podcast. This week we talk to Jamie Blackett, author, farmer and conservationist. We talk about many topics which affect the rural countryside in today's age, such as rewilding and if it's actually better for the environment, the issues about having no apex predators in Britain, why banning fox hunting was not listening to the science, why Jamie has changed his farming methods away from chemicals, advocates for conservation of our green and pleasant lands, but why you can't expect him to be at the next Extinction Rebellion protest. Enjoy the episode. Jamie Blackett, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. So you are a conservationist, but you also farm and hunt on the land. How do those views add up? Well, I think um, 20, certainly 30 years ago, that would have been a strange question to ask because I, I think it was taken as a given that anybody involved in, in farming and um, in hunting and shooting, fishing, they were that the, their primary motivation was um, conservation in the first instance, that we were really managing the land and hunting and or, or culling or whatever, the, the, the surplus and... Uh, and eating it. And I haven't really deviated from that viewpoint, but clearly others have to the extent that um, the sort of almost the mainstream narrative in the media now is of humans exploiting other species on the land. And this idea that we've moved from the Holocene to the Anthropocene uh, and that any human agency in the environment is bad uh, and that <clears throat> underpins some of the not all of but some of the rewilding movement and uh, I don't see any inconsistency of uh, describing myself as a, a conservationist and, uh, and also being a, a farmer and somebody involved in field sports because uh, to me that's all all part of um, responsible management of the land and uh, encouragement of, of other species to to thrive in it, in it and you've now published three books and uh, in the two about you you it comes across that you're very environmentally orientated but i don't think it would be too far-fetched to say that you're not going you're going to be joining extinction rebellion on their next protest so how does your environmentalism differ from their eco-activism because surely from the outside it looks like you both want the best for the land yeah i mean it's a good question and and um i think I think it's it's in the in the word is the the word ending in ism environmentalism. Uh, I you know passionately believe in in looking after the environment and trying to encourage as much wildlife, what we now call biodiversity, on the land that I manage. But uh, as soon as as soon as it became an ism, to me it, it was all sort of weaponized, if you like, and there is this narrative that uh it's not unique to extinction rebellion but i i mean you know they're they're pretty much the same actors in extinction rebellion just stop oil various things rising animal rising i think is it right to roam uh i mean these are all people who uh, some of some of them quite well-meaning some of them some of them really not well-meaning at all somebody some of them i think um have a, a very different agenda one of using any sort of statistic they can lay their hand on whether it's right or not 
to paint this narrative of, of crisis, biodiversity crisis, uh, climate crisis, whatever, in order to affect political change. And uh, I don't subscribe to that. I don't, I'm not saying everything is, is, is perfect, but uh, I believe in, in evolution rather than revolution and, in, and also in, in the enlightenment values of uh, truth and, and reason and, and the, <clears throat> the use of science to, to move forward. And to my mind, the, the others, or not I say the others, I mean, you know, the people I mentioned have um, hijacked all of that. And, and, and we, you know, we're now in this period of what I, what I call counter-enlightenment, where, you know, they will turn facts that we have accepted for millennia on their head. Uh, you know, but, uh, this idea that we should suddenly stop eating meat, for example. I've ever seen it as a sort of generational thing. So I'm part of the Gen Z, and uh, yeah. it came to a it came to a be. point in the 2019 general election where everything was kicking off, and it was Brexit. And I remember thinking, "Oh my goodness, this is the worst it's ever been." Surely, and it was only when I was going then going back into the 70s and 80s, even just a few years ago, you know, within Britain, I was like, "There was so much worse." in terms of the political turmoil. And then you start looking back over the, the the centuries and you're just like, oh my goodness, we have it so good. And now if you look back at 2019, which seemed at such a, uh, a point of turmoil within the political system, it's actually, that was the best it ever was because now it's COVID and then we had the lockdowns and then we got inflation and it's really spiraled. So it's, it's funny looking back and thinking as a Gen Z person, I was like, wow, we're in trouble. But really, it was a lot of it was just narrative that you find online. Do you find the battles online humorous? Do you take it seriously? Because you're of a generation before online. So are you able to take a step back from all of your Twitter battles? Oh, yes, definitely. And um, sometimes I just um, you know go off Twitter uh, completely for, for a few days <laughs> from a whole, on holiday or something. Generally speaking, I think it is... Uh, it is a force for good. I think. I think uh, it's quite empowering for everybody to be able to be part of this sort of national conversation on, uh, <clears throat> particularly on Twitter, but other other social media as well. Uh, that that wasn't available before, and to be you know to be really involved and to and to to put their point across. Um, I mean, obviously there are there are bad sides to it as well. Um, you know, there is uh, there's a lot of uh, Ill feeling out there, a lot of a lot of hatred expressed on Twitter, uh, and the trolling can get quite unpleasant sometimes. But um, but often actually it's an opportunity. You know, if somebody is trolling me, uh, very often you know it's it's very it's very soon apparent they're doing it from a level of complete ignorance, and uh, one can sort of you know turn it to advantage sometimes. Uh, sometimes they you know they're so completely brainwashed by whatever they believe that. Uh, you know that's not possible, but I think it, I think it's quite healthy that there is this opportunity for people to let off steam. You know, it it, uh, it may even prevent revolutions in future. Uh, the fact that, that people can go on Twitter and mouth off about stuff, and they don't have to go around, around throwing bricks through windows to to get their point across so much. Um, what are the common uh, the common things you come up against on Twitter, or even in in, in life, or anything on the online world? As what you support and live out is in working the land. A lot of that seems quite countercultural these days in the 
the way that a lot of people view the environment, especially you touched on rewilding there. So what are the main arguments in which you often find people attacking you on? There's the whole, I, I suppose you can group them together, really, under, under um, eco-modernism. You know, there's now a word for it, this uh, doctrine that in order to save the world, we need to stop farming, uh, rewild the countryside, and um, eat laboratory food or, you know, food grown in, in buildings from, from various different, different techniques, but um, mostly um, fermentation uh, and growing um, fungi for, for food and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, it's based on, on a, a number of, of uh, completely false premises. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, it's, uh, although I think it, ha- it, is t- it is technically feasible to sort of uh, conjure up food out of out of uh, midair using uh using a lot of energy it's it's not it's not scalable yet uh it's not affordable uh is because it's you know uses a huge amount of energy and it's not uh it's not safe yet i mean we, you know it hasn't hasn't been proven safe for humans to subsist on this sort of thing uh, and it's very unlikely to be i think sorry my dog's barking in the background it's all right um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, and and the whole um, idea of, of rewilding. Um, well, we've sort of seen what happens this week in in the Mediterranean on uh, on roads and Corfu, where the scrub has been allowed to to build up. Uh, I mean, scrub is a good thing in 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 small quantities for. for birds to nest in and that sort of thing but but if you if you allow large acreages to revert to scrub then you know don't be surprised if they catch fire every now and again and pump millions of tons of carbon into the atmosphere and, and destroy destroy habitats um for for birds and mammals and destroy people's livelihoods the more we the more we understand about what's going on in the soil particularly but also about um just uh, habitats in general the more the more um, you know uh, it leads me to the conclusion that a balanced countryside where there's farming and and some wilding in some places including on this farm actually i mean there are areas that i've deliberately let go and and, and uh, <clears throat> either either waited to see what mother nature serves up uh, or or deliberately created some sort of habitat like a pond for example that wouldn't have happened naturally uh, without <clears throat> human intervention uh, and it's clearly better than anything that might have ha- might have been there if we just left it you know that 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 sort of balanced uh, landscape where man is managing it with but with a, a a light touch in places is going to be better to, to my mind than, than a sort of laissez-faire rewilding that's that's envisaged in <clears throat> in a lot of places by by people who have absolutely no experience of of um land management you know and i include people like george monbiot in that now that we are actually measuring soil carbon here it's uh it's very striking i mean it, this is the first year we've done it uh we've got master's students from glasgow university helping us here and uh, to extrapolate the data and the arable arable fields that have just remained arable uh have only about, um, I think, six, say 60, 64, 65 tonnes of carbon per hectare in the soil. And the, the fields that we have 
put down to grass and grazed with cattle on a sort of intensive extensive system of of grazing with large numbers of cattle but but infrequently on a sort of rotational grazing system could you yeah could Um, you just explain the concept of rotational grazing yeah well it's um it's come out of a a number of different different sources really um i suppose the main one is alan savory in africa with his holistic management theory he observed very closely what was going on in, in 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 very hot dry habitats in africa and and uh the southern states of America and Mexico and places like that. And he worked out that what happened is if you just let the vegetation grow, you had you had to actually take it all off because if you just left it, it shaded out its own roots and then it died and you had this, this process of oxidation which led to <clears throat> the spread of, of deserts. The only, and the only way to, to, to get rid of it was either to burn it, which obviously was... Um, what the Aborigines have been doing, for instance, in, in Australia for millennia, but um, but is unsatisfactory in many ways, or graze it. And and he worked out that that actually the until until he experimented in the in the late fifties and and early nineteen sixties with all of this, the the received wisdom was that you you had to remove all the livestock um, to prevent the spread of deserts because because of overgrazing. Uh, and he realised that that was that was a sort of half truth. Uh, clearly, there is such a thing as overgrazing, but uh, undergrazing is more of a threat. Uh, and, it, and then, by experimentation, and, and others then took on his work, and they realised that actually, if you if you graze uh, if you graze um, pasture right down, and then you leave, critically you then leave it because the, the rest period is what is really important. Uh, and particularly, you don't overgraze by trying to graze it when it when it's trying to recover, when it's pushing out its its buds, if you like, its its new growth. If you if you graze that off, then that um, really sets the sets it back. But if you graze it hard and then take the the cattle or the sheep or whatever off, uh, let it let it recover for as long as possible, uh, and then go back and do the same thing again, then you uh, well, the first thing that happens is that you get much more grass so you can you can stock more heavily and you can feed more people but also because you you've got this um actually you've got the the manuring of the soil but but also more critically you've got you you've got also the uh the saliva effect um <clears throat> on, on the vegetation which people now realize is it, it stimulates growth um you've got urine uh, but you've also got um leaf matter uh, being trampled into the soil uh, and you've also got the roots. Uh, every time the grass is growing uh, um, upwards, it's also growing downwards and putting down roots. And then those roots are dying off when it, when you graze it right back down again. The root, those roots die die off, and then it puts down more. And all that root matter translates into uh, soil carbon eventually uh, with the, the, the creation of humus in the soil. And now that the, the world is completely hung up on carbon. Uh, that you know that is really important, and there is this this uh, theory that they came up with at the the Paris round of the COP talks of capture a poor meal uh, four four parts per thousand if you can increase uh, soil carbon by 0.04 percent, then you would mitigate 
all the anthropogenic carbon in the atmosphere. Uh, I mean, on a, on a continuous basis, every you know each year you'd be able to do that. And then our, as I was going back say, to our own uh, soil, uh, where where we carried on growing crops. We have pretty pretty low soil carbon. Where we put it down to pasture, and we've we've grazed it using using this rotational grazing technique, which is also basically mimics what happens in nature with herds of herbivores being moved around by predators and grazing in one place, but then we being moved on to the next. Um, then our soil carbon's risen by about twenty tons per hectare over quite a short space of time. And interestingly, the, bit, the bits that we've rewilded, where we've just let the natural vegetation, whatever it happens to be, even ragwort or whatever, grow, uh, and we've grazed it sporadically, just a sort of conservation grazing basis, very low density. That the soil carbon there hasn't hasn't really risen by by nearly as much. I mean, there is more obviously than there is on the arable fields. So I mean that tells me. I mean that here you know, that is that is at the early stages of, of one very small study. But I mean that tells me that that rewilding from a purely from a soil carbon point of view is not the the panacea that that uh, people like George Monbiot think it is. And uh, I mean, and, and obviously it's 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 better in, in many respects for biodiversity or certain species of biodiversity. But but if uh, if somebody came here was mad keen to see birds, uh, I would take them first to the, the fields being grazed by by our dairy cows because uh, there you can pretty much guarantee you see large flocks of starlings, uh, rooks, uh, all, all the sort of farmland birds that like poking around in cow pats and, and, and eating insects and invertebrates uh, and and swallows and sand martins that we, we, that we have here. Uh, we don't have many swifts or house martins, but uh, you know they would they would all be there as well. I mean, you know, certainly certainly always loads of swallows above the cattle, and not necessarily in the areas that, that are, are just left to be to sort of revert to scrub. I mean, clearly, if you you know if you were a nightingale or something, you would go and, you would go and make your home in the in the rewilded bit. So it's not you know it's it's not as clear cut as uh, as people think it is. And you know nothing is black and white, but I do, I do encounter lots of people on, particularly on Twitter, but uh, you know lots of people who who think it is black and white. You know, farming, farming bad, wilding good, and it's it's not like that. And you know there are so many different ways of farming, and, and the more we, you know, we've been my generation, particularly my father's generation, my grandfather's generation. I mean, you know, they were they they had. Um, Come through, come through the Second World War, you know, come close to starving, and had the, the miracle of, of the so-called Green Revolution, uh, <clears throat> using chemical fertilizers and chemi- chemical sprays to control weeds, that sort of thing. And, and uh, you know, they, initially they thought that was that was fantastic. You know, the yields went up and price of food went down, and everybody, you know, everybody was uh, thought that was great. But you know, we're, we're now. We've moved beyond that now. We, we you know, we now realise that actually the best way to farm is to use nature as much as possible to use, to, to build natural fertility in the soil uh, and to minimise the, the inputs and the, and the sprays. And you know, we no longer think necessarily of thistles and 
and docks and things as, as our enemy, we realize that actually what they're doing is pushing down tap roots that are, that are breaking up the, the pan beneath the grass and allowing the, the grass to, to get the roots to go, go deeper and absorb more nutrients. And, uh, you know, and, that, and that's, that's a, a change of, of mindset that's only come about really in the last few years. And, um, you know, I suppose where Packham and Mobbo and people perhaps have been a little a bit helpful is that, you know, they've been making so much noise about all this uh, that, that uh, farmers have been determined to, to sort of prove them wrong. And it's made us more determined to, to actually um, really make a go of regenerative agriculture, which, it, which is uh, something that they absolutely hate, you know, the, the sort of eco-modernists, because uh, it, 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 you know, completely removes a lot of their arguments if, um, if we can if we can have both, if we can have food food production, but but also lots of carbon going into the soil and, and more biodiversity, uh, then you know that's got to be got to be better. You know, and that and that leads on into into you know the sort of victimising of gamekeepers who are really really trying to redress the the imbalance, predator imbalance in nature by taking out crows and other ubiquitous predators not the rare ones but the you know the ones that are that foxes and crows and things um uh, which which is you know has a has a fantastic effect on on biodiversity nature is is incapable of of doing that anymore we haven't got you know we haven't got the apex predators to regulate our ecosystem anymore i mean you know we don't we don't have wolves or bears or lynxes or you know maybe we could possibly bring some of those back in some areas but but surely not in in most. I don't think you you'd be happy to see wolves walking down the street in Dalbiti. I was reading about wolves being reintroduced because they have a, a a total radius of five hundred kilometers. If you reintroduce them to the Highlands, you could see them down in Manchester within a year. And I just thought that was hilarious. Really? Yeah. Well, there you are. I mean, you know, I mean, of course, it may be possible with with modern technology to to sort of have a sort of hybrid system where. You do introduce some of these creatures, but you put smart collars on them that stop them, you know, crossing lines on a map or something. I mean, I'm sure that that sort of thing may, may well come in. Um, and you know, I, I think there are parts of islands where, where, provided the poor old sheep farmers were compensated, and also, you know, it could be possible perhaps to to have wolves back. Um, but what people don't understand is that, that if you have the wolves back, then your Badgers, for example, would go from roughly 10 badgers per square kilometre down to about uh, 0.3, which is what happens in Romania, for example, where there are wolves and and very few badgers because, you know, it's the theory of trophic cascade that people like Chris Packham are always rabbiting on about. Yeah, you know, I agree agree that trophic cascade definitely does work, but um, you either have to have these apex predators and accept that the meso predators are going to get pretty scarce and pretty scared or you know it, my theory is that you you know you should allow man to be the apex predator in the in the absence of of, of other predators um got nothing against introducing other predators if it if it's practical but if it isn't then um we we have to do something about it i mean there is you know there's a there's a massive imbalance around our coasts uh, where we don't have enough orca to reduce the seal population, the seal population is out of control, and surprise, surprise, um, we've got very few salmon left in our 
rivers. And, uh, you know, as a fisherman, obviously, that's something that I, I deplore from perfectly, you know, for completely selfish reasons. But, but actually, if you think about it, salmon are, are really important in our ecosystem, in our riparian ecosystems, because right from their, their eggs up in the, the headwaters through the, through the, you know, the par stage, the fry and par and, and, and smolt stage through to the grills going out into the estuaries, they're providing f- food for kingfishers um, right, right the way up to ospreys and, um, and sea eagles. And if, the sa- if wild salmon suddenly cease to exist, which they may well within our lifetimes, certainly within your lifetime, that's going to have a devastating effect on all sorts of wildlife. And, you know, we, if we're going to stop that, then, yes, of course, we have to stop polluting our rivers. We, have, we definitely have. I mean, one thing I do agree with George Mobbio about is we have, to, we have to clean up our rivers and stop slurry and sewage going into them. But we also have to take some, you know, take some quite difficult decisions, possibly closing down the salmon farming industry that we now know is causing a lot of damage, putting putting antibiotics in, into the um, ecosystem, um, is spreading disease and, and lice and so on. Uh, and we and, and I think we you know we also have to be quite robust about dealing with with seals and and, and cormorants and things. Uh, at le- uh, you know at least until salmon stocks have started to recover everywhere. This is this is the big the fault line I suppose really is is uh, between those of us who are actively mostly actively involved in conservation uh, and want to do the right thing and the the sort of armchair conservationists who uh think that if 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 we'll just stay in cities and leave the countryside to do its thing it will it will somehow right itself well well it won't i mean how 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 can it when there is such a a predator imbalance i mean there are there are far more badgers than nature ever intended uh, I mean, the badgers exist in in Africa. I mean, the, the ecosystem in Europe and in Africa was actually very similar at one stage. There were lions in both places. Uh, there were rhinoceroses in both places. Ours were woolly, and the ones in Africa didn't, didn't have hair. There were there were elephants in both ecosystems. Uh, again, ours were woolly. Uh, and uh, in Africa, the the ecosystem is largely unchanged. And they do have badgers. They're called honey badgers um, in Africa, but uh, but there are not many of them because you know they get eaten by leopards and hyenas and uh, all sorts of things. Uh, whereas, whereas here we've allowed the badger, which is omnivorous and um, and pretty indestructible, uh, to be the the apex predator. And uh, so it, you know it'll it's rooting out bumblebee nests. It's it's uh, Killing ground nesting birds, eating the nests, and uh, that that can't be uh, allowed to carry on indefinitely. And somebody at some stage has to stand up in Parliament and say, you know, this has got to stop, uh, and we've got to have some sort of legislation. I would argue some sort of trophic cascades bill that sought actively to restore those trophic cascades, which we're already seeing with eagles, for example. You know, where there are where there are eagles. There are far fewer buzzards and kites and things, and, th- and therefore, correspondingly, far more kestrels and, and other small, smaller birds, merlins and things like that, uh, all of which is, is great. Uh, instead, we just got a, we're sort of hung up on sort of sterile arguments about hen harriers, and which are, you know, are 
beautiful birds, uh, meso predators, they would never build up to any any great numbers in a in an ecosystem regulated by eagles. You know, it's sort of it's sort of happening in the avian world, but but in the in the rivers with the with the salmon and and and, and on the on the land, um, you know, it's everything's really badly out of kilter. From one hot potato in rewilding to another hot potato of fox hunting, you are a huge supporter of fox hunting. Why do you think it was a bad idea for the Labour government to ban the sport? Well, I think well, I think it's acknowledged now, really, by Tony Blair, who I think felt that he's on record saying it's the piece of domestic legislation that he most regretted, and by the uh, the guy who actually drafted the bill, whose name I can't remember, that it was really bad legislation. It didn't it didn't really follow the the science or or actually even the ethical arguments. It was it was passed into law mainly, really, just to appease the, the left wing of the Labour Party, who who had admittedly uh, had it as a, a manifesto commitment, going all the way back to uh, Keir Hardy and, you know, the big, the, the, the style of the Labour Party. And, it, and really, it was just there because it was, it was symbolic, I think, of uh, the Labour movement saying, well, there you are, you know, we've we're in control now. We've we've got rid of fox hunting, which which in some parts of the country, not by no means all, uh, it's seen as a sort of upper class activity. In mo- most He's- parts of the country, it isn't it's, it's it's actually the one one rural pursuit that that <laughs> ironically that tends to unite all walks of life in the countryside. You um, say there that so they I didn't think, follow was- the legislation didn't follow the science. How so? Well, I think I think because. I mean, I subscribe to the idea that, 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 that anything you do in the countryside should be as close to natural processes as possible. So, you know, I've talked about grazing, for example, so move, moving herbivores around as if they were being chased by predators from one place to another and grazing, da, da, da. I mean, that's a natural process. I don't think you can really argue with natural processes. And uh, the, the one natural process that... that, that um, is missing in the countryside is uh, that that has a, a big effect on on uh, lots of things is is what I, I've spoken about as wolves taking out foxes and and if you in in Eastern Europe there's lots of evidence of of wolves actually staking out fox earths and digging down and dragging out the cubs and killing them and and also, and, and um, you know and, and and no and nobody very rarely come across anybody who, who really thinks that the foxes should be protected I mean certainly. Nobody in the RSPB or um, even in the RSPCA thinks that the fox should be protected because uh, you know we're already seeing in our cities what's what's uh, happening with massive increase in the fox population, <clears throat> foxes taking out cats and all sorts of things. And you know, so it then follows on. Well, how, what what is the best way of controlling foxes? Well, uh, and th- there is no way of doing it, unfortunately, without a degree of um, pain being inflicted on the fox, but if you if you shoot a fox, which I which I've done, I mean, you, you there's always a, a grave risk of, of wounding it uh, and maybe not being able to then dispatch it. Certainly, if you snare a fox, or, or the, the fashion now is for these live, you know, these cages that, that you really, the fact the fox sort of goes into a cage and gets caught caught in a cage trap, and you know, is under stress for for a long time until, or certainly for you know several hours probably until somebody comes checks the trap and uh, and kills the fox whereas uh hunting is completely binary you're you know at the, at the end of the day something 
the foxes are all 100% dead or 100% alive. There's no wounding. And if there is stress, I mean, clear, and, and clearly it is a form of stress, but it, it, but it, it is a completely natural form of stress because foxes are flight animals that have evolved to, uh, to, to cope with being chased by wolves to the extent that a vixen that, that is carrying cubs actually gives off no scent, no scent at all through her feet and doesn't get, you know, gets, I'm not saying not going to be hunted at all, but the vixen will get away, whereas the dog fox would be, would be chased and killed. And, and, and the, the death is, and obviously there's obviously a chase, but, that, but then uh, whether it's a wolf or, or a hound killing a fox, it's, it's, it's pretty instantaneous. And there's no, you know, there is no wounding. The fox either dies or it, or it doesn't. And so, um, you know, I, d- I don't think we should we should be arguing again against a natural process or a process that is as natural as possible. I mean, we 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 mankind have been hunting with uh, domesticated wolves, dogs, hounds uh, for twenty. Uh, to be to my mind, that is a, a you know a natural process, one that is ingrained in our culture you know walk into any pub there'll be any rural pub there'll be hunting prints on the wall or you know whatever it is uh, and one that, that that is uh uh it's a deeply held belief in, in in rural communities that this is this is an you know an acceptable way of of controlling foxes and and, and a way that has evolved into our culture to being a community activity where everybody gets involved whether on foot or bicycles or cars or Children on ponies, adults on horses. Uh, to, to, to my mind, it was a deeply shocking thing that, that the Labour government did uh, a bit uh, to try to well to, to, to ban it because um, you know it was very similar to, in effect, to a Tory government trying to trying to you know ban football in our inner cities. Uh, you know, it would be met with incredulity in the middle of Glasgow or Manchester or somewhere that you know the idea that you would ban football. Well, I, I mean that's the way we all felt. About banning hunting in the countryside, but we were completely ignored, and we're you know we continue to be ignored. And <clears throat> until until that wrong is righted, I think I think there will continue to be a big divide between metropolitan Britain and the countryside. So just to change tack, then I wanted to talk to you about your very first book, which was written about your schoolmaster. What struck me was very few people ever even respect their previous teachers. So then to get a book written about a teacher must be pretty incredible. So what made Michael Kidson so special? Well, I, I suppose the, the, that's the heart of the book, really, is, it, um, is how this, um, <clears throat> this man who, um, to outward appearances, actually was uh, in, some, in some ways a rather unlikable, uh, abrasive character with, with, uh, with many faults, how he came to be such an amazing influence on a whole cohort of uh, young men and i think he i think i think well there's several things really i think i mean i think one one was that um deep down uh he he was an amazing uh man because he, he was completely unselfish really he put his pupils first uh he put his own career on the line several times to help boys in in difficulty he was he was quite a saint in in that way i think i think also because he was um he was very much his own his own man 
Uh, we've talked already quite a bit about sort of groupthink and, and uh, how we're stuck with this sort of establishment that that's, uh, seems incapable of, of challenging itself on, on some of the big questions of the day. Uh, and I think he taught his pupils to, to really challenge things and not to just accept what you were told us uh, at face value. And so, um, you know, the, the, the facts speak for themselves. He died or he, he, got, he got ill and old and was looked after. I mean, not, not sort of physically on a day-to-day basis, but, uh, but, but his sort of guardians who effectively who sort of, who sort of uh, organized his care and that sort of thing were his former pupils, two of his former pupils who then became his executors when he died. And, um, and you know, they, they felt sufficiently strongly about, about his legacy that, that they commissioned me to write the book about him. And, uh, and the book pretty much wrote itself because there were so many of his pupils, most of whom now are in their, in their sort of 50s, 60s and 70s, who, uh, who had such vivid memories that they, uh, you know, they contributed bits and pieces and I was able to sort of uh, collate them into a, into a book. So it's a fascinating project, and um, strange enough, it's it's. I mean, there was already, I suppose, a bit of a, a genre of uh, sort of Mister Chips type books, but uh, most of them were fiction. Dead Poet Society, The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, Mister Chips, all that sort of thing. But uh, there's now, there's now, I was um, contacted by somebody the other day who uh, his name is David Viani, who's um, who is actually a schoolmaster and he's a housemaster at Cranley School. And uh, he wanted to, he, well, he's going to write a very similar book about his tutor at Oxford. So I suppose Kitson has sort of uh, maybe maybe spawned a, a new sort of genre of uh, people writing biographies about the people who taught them. And, and, and uh, you know, that'd be, that'd be great if, <clears throat> if it does, because I think that, you know, teachers who are often undervalued will become more valued as a result. I just wanted to ask something that we've spoken a lot of what we construe as the establishment those in Whitehall and in power and how they can be accused of groupthink etc but given that Michael Kidson taught many of the people who were in power including one of the prime ministers David Cameron who could be accused of setting us on our current trajectory how does his teaching of challenge the narrative to where we are today because of the people who he taught, how does that arc coincide with what you were saying now? Yeah, fun enough. I don't think. I think. Um, I think David Cameron um, is much maligned. I think he. I think he. He did keep an open mind about things, and he. Uh, I mean, a lot. A lot of the toxicity that there is in our policy now uh, wasn't. There wasn't there during the Cameron years. Actually, fun enough. I think. I think he presided over over a, a rather. Happier country than it is now. I think actually, funner. I think he. I think he. Um, you know, he'll he'll go down as the prime minister who, who um, enabled Brexit and then, and then sort of fell on his sword, having the vote having in his mind gone the wrong way. But I mean, I think he. I mean, I think he's willing to to say, well, look, you know, we've been arguing about whether we should be in Europe all this time. Let's just have a vote. I mean, I think that was actually quite quite a good sort of democratic thing to do. And I and. Um, I think actually history probably will will be kinder, possibly to to not necessarily to him, but to Brexit anyway, um, than it is being at the moment, uh, because the 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 immediate historians are, you know tend to be the the liberal press, the, you know, the, the, the BBC, the Guardian sort of view of things is that Brexit's a disaster. Honestly, well, <clears throat> I'm not I'm not sure that it has been at all actually. 
Oh, I, just, I actually voted Remain, but I, you know, I don't, to my mind, the wheels haven't come off with Brexit. We've been freer as a country to do th- to do things than we would have been, perhaps. And uh, I don't think. Um, I mean, I think there is there there is this sort of misunderstanding. I, I think that Eton Eton sort of perpetuates an establishment, but I but I think actually many Etonians. I mean, I don't I don't I don't think it's a typical Etonian anyway, and I, and I because I think I think it, it sort of fosters the individual as a school. I mean, there are there are a lot there are lots of schools that um, turn out sort of clones of their their ideal of what somebody should be but i, I don't think i don't think you could ever say that of eaton really that's produced people like george orwell and Keynes and and all these sort of thinkers um you know on, on both sides of the argument you know right-wing people left-wing people you know i was watching question time the other night and hugh fernley whittingstall was uh, was on it who was in the year below me at school i sort of, I, I didn't know him all that well but I, I did know him a bit and um you know he and he was arguing from a very much a sort of uh, yeah, sort of uh, environmentalist sort of uh, viewpoint, uh, and uh, you know, so that, you, there are a lot, there are lots of different people on all parts of the spectrum. And I don't, and I, so, and I think Michael Gibson actually, if you analyse his pupils, I don't think uh, you know they're all, a lot of them doing fascinating, different, you know, lots of different things and with different pushing different agendas. So no, I don't, I don't think he's contributed in any way to. The, to sort of group group thing, and if anything, rather the reverse. Actually, I think I think most of his pupils are uh, tend to be more sort of intellectually curious sort of people who who uh, question the way things are rather than rather than conform. Brilliant, Jamie Blackett. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks very much, Joe. <laughs>